All right, if you could begin making your way back to your seats, and as you do, grab your Bibles and head on over to Matthew 6. If you've not been with us the last uh, several months, so there I will insert Pastor Larry and Nancy not been with us the last several months. Uh, we are walking through the Sermon on the Mount together, and uh, this morning we're going to walk through and break down the Lord's Prayer with one another. And uh, kids, you have been joining us and will continue to join us through the month of July. And uh, so hopefully you got a hold of your busy bag, which just doesn't have things to occupy you, but things to help you stay engaged and uh, tracking along as we look at God's Word together this morning. Uh, But over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6 and what Jesus has to say and what he's done in chapter 6 is he's begun to identify really the three main types of spiritual disciplines that were a part of Jewish life. That being giving, that being prayer, and that being fasting. Those were really the three main types of spiritual disciplines that were a part of Jewish life that a Jewish man or a Jewish woman would have been engaged in. And Matthew chapter 6 verse 1 gives us the whole big idea for the first 18 verses of chapter 6. And it says this, don't do those things so that other people will tell you how good you are. Don't do it for their applause. Don't do it because you know they're watching. Don't do it so they come and pat you on the back. Don't do it that way. And there's a warning then given. If you do, you're going to get the applause that you're looking for. You're going to get the pat on the back that you desperately want. But that's all you're going to get. That you are sacrificing eternal rewards from God the Father for a temporal attaboy. A temporal at a girl. And what Jesus begins to do then through verses 2 to 4 is address then specifically how giving should be done. He goes as far to say, and I think he's over-exaggerating the point to make his point. When you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. If that was even possible. But see, so guarded or be so guarded from giving For the praise of others, that your left hand is ignorant of what your right hand is doing. There's a similar point made in regards to then prayer. And the big idea that we looked at last week in regards to prayer was this. There was actually two of them. Do not pray for public praise. Do not be like the hypocrite. And the solution there was to go into your secret room, to go into your prayer closet, shut and lock the door. Now Jesus is not saying that you're never allowed to pray in public. He's not saying that any and all prayer has to happen in the inner secret room of your house. Perhaps that bathroom in the middle that has no windows looking in or out. But what he is saying is you do what you have to do if you're tempted to pray in such a way that you want the attention of others. But he also said this, don't pray like an unbeliever. Do not pray like an unbeliever. Do not believe that you have to somehow have the right words said at the right time in the right way so that God will listen to you and God will pay attention to you. 
And in both of those instances, Jesus tells us and uses the name Father as he did so with giving. And we have our relationship with God again placed in the context and expressed in the relationship of a father and a child. So let's think through those two do nots in regards to prayer, in regards to the relationship that you would have with your children, fathers, mothers, it certainly is appropriate there as well. Okay, so do not pray for public praise would be like one of your kids going up to the other one of your kids and going, watch, I'm going to impress you with how I go talk to dad. It's kind of silly to think about it in that way, but that's the do not pray for public praise. Hey, sibling, I want you to be impressed by what I have to go and say to dad. And then you go over and, oh, father, and whatever it might be that you think would impress them. The second, do not pray like an unbeliever, would be a child believing they need to somehow get the attention of their father by saying the right words at the right time in the right way. And that one's just as tragic. And these are the two do-nots that Jesus gives us last week. This morning, what the Lord's prayer is, is how we are to pray. is what we are to do. And I'll be real honest with you, this week has been a bit of a painful week because I've realized once again, and there's been several points along the way where I've realized this, there's so much room for growth here in my personal life. I am often prone to just come to God with my list. And I'm not sure if you can identify with that, but that might end up being a lot of the sum total of my prayer. Is God, here are the things on my list. But in the context of a relationship, Jesus isn't saying, come to God with your list. He's saying God's a father. In verse 8, he goes as far to say, and we're going to look at this briefly here in a minute, that he actually already knows what you need before you even ask him for anything. So prayer is not the activity of bringing your list to God, however prone we are to do so. It's much, much more about being with him. And I know I'm just, I'm, I'm prone God, here's my list. If you could check those things or stop those things or maybe work these things, we'd, we'd be good. I'd be grateful. And I think what we have in the Lord's Prayer is actually a way to approach prayer in a way that takes us past the list to a relationship where we approach Him as His child boldly because there's no condemnation and we've been adopted as his sons and daughters. And we get to come into the throne room of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we get to spend time with them. That's what we're going to try to unpack in verses 9 to 13. Before we go any further, let's pray together. And ask God if he'd be gracious to meet with us. Well, God, we do pray for that. We pray that you would help us to understand your word, that you would be gracious to us in that way. 
that you would give us ears to hear, minds that understand, hearts that would receive. And God, help us to see where our individual and certainly collective prayer has room for growth. But we can even be as profitable to have some specific ways this week we could begin to see our prayer lives change. So God, help us to make sense of what Jesus has said in regards to this prayer. What amounts to be perhaps a fairly well-known famous passage and pray that you would help us to understand it we pray this in Jesus name amen I want to take you back to verse 8 before we actually get into verse 9 and I just briefly touched on this a minute ago because in verse 8, in response to the do not pray like an unbeliever, Jesus says, your father already knows what you need before you ask him. So prayer is not the activity of approaching God in the right way, at the right time, with the right words to somehow create a magical incantation that gets his attention and obligates him to respond. That's witchcraft. That's not prayer. And he says this, your father already knows what you need before you ask him. And so it begs the question in my mind, does prayer actually change anything? And what do we do with that? If God already knows what I need, why am I bringing him needs? What's the point? And I think the Lord's Prayer unpacks some of that for us. And we're going to see in there what the point of prayer is. And certainly a part of that, give us, our, give us this day our daily bread, is a part of expressing dependence. It's a part of recognizing needs. But you still have the question, does prayer change things? If God already knows, does it change anything? And I want us to just embrace that tension. And I'm not going to solve the tension for us this morning, in part because we don't have time to do that and break down the Lord's Prayer. But I do want to recognize that there's a tension there. And the tension is, is, is the tension that we see throughout, really, the whole Scriptures. And certainly that gets expressed in a lot of different ways in the New Testament. The tension between God's sovereignty over all things and then my part in this world that he's created, in, in the, the choices that I have, in the, the relational aspect as I engage with him. And so we have passages like Ephesians 1 verse 11 and Hebrews 1 verse 3 that talk about God doing all things according to the counsel of his will. And Jesus upholding the universe by the word of his power. I mean, there is no missing the point of those verses that nothing happens that God has not said in Christ, let it happen. That breath you just took was not because your brain told your lungs to inhale. That was part of it. It didn't begin there. It began with Jesus 
saying your brain can tell your lungs to inhale. And oh, by the way, we're going to create all the molecules in the atmosphere for you to do so. But then we're told to pray. So there's a tension here that I, I, I want us to learn to embrace that tension and to hold it as such. Because tension's not a bad thing if it's correctly placed. Here's perhaps a helpful way to understand this. That piano has 88 different keys held in tension. Now, it hasn't been tuned in a while, so it may not actually be that correctly placed. It could be a little out of tune. But this guitar behind me has six strings held in tension. And that tension causes those strings to play, to play distinct notes. And what happens is that a sound wave gets created and then your eardrum receives that sound wave and your mind processes that and then you quote unquote hear that sound, that tone. And you have a chord of tones made, which is tension being held in the right way, accomplishing something that can be beautiful and enjoyable and pleasing. But then there's tension, such as me trying to hang the freezer door back onto my refrigerator this past week. It's not the kind of tension you want. You want that to swing a little bit more free than that. And so I'm up there, and there's tension on those screws, and I'm having to kind of maneuver that door to try to release and rele give relief to some of that tension, because you don't want tension there. You want those screws to go in without stripping themselves and being seated in the correct way. So all tension is not bad, but it has to be placed and oriented correctly. And so we cannot in any way, shape, or form ever excuse or reject or move past the truth that everything in life happens because Jesus has commanded it to happen. But at the very same time, the tension that we hold, though, is that the choices I make are real choices. And those choices have real consequences. And the prayers that I pray are real prayers. And prayer does change things. And I think the Lord's Prayer helps us unpack some of what exactly gets changed. But prayer is not coming to God as if He's a genie. Jesus has told us he's a good father. He knows what you need before you ask him. And the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer is our father. You have once again the relationship expressed. And prayer is not the, the, the orchestrating of, again, the right words in the right way at the right time to obligate God to do something for you. It's something far more profound than that. Now in that, I do want to note that there's nothing wrong in and of itself with saying the Lord's Prayer as is written. 
There would be nothing wrong, in my opinion, for us to say, let's say the Lord's Prayer together. And all of us, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and, and, and walk through that. I, we've done that at gravesides before. I think there's an appropriateness to that at certain points in time within, within one's life or week or whatever. However, if you're saying the Lord's Prayer, thinking that saying the right words in the right way at the right time somehow gets you something, then you've erred in what Jesus had said in verses 6 and 7. Don't heap up empty words and phrases thinking that you're going to cause God to hear you. So we got to be careful here. And it's fascinating if we look at the New Testament and certainly the life of Jesus, he gives us this prayer. He does so in Matthew 6. He'll do so in the book of Luke as well in the response to, and in response to the disciples saying, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he goes, well, here you go. I'm going to teach you how to pray. And he does so, but there is no other recorded instance in the life of Jesus where he prays this prayer. When he does the fishes and loaves thing, he doesn't pray this prayer. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's not praying this prayer. And so the Lord's Prayer, as is it named, is best thought of as a model for what prayer looks like. So there's nothing wrong with praying it as a whole, but it's probably better thought about as a model of prayer. It's not a magic prayer. It's not an incantation. Again, that's witchcraft. It's a model of prayer. You can see that beginning to be expressed in the beginning of verse 9. The word pray there is a command. Jesus is commanding you and I to do something. That is to pray. And then the words like this could be translated in this way. So pray in this way. Let me give you a model of prayer. And we have different models of prayer that we're familiar with. Some of you are familiar with the Acts model of prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Now, Julie Walter has interpreted that and put that on a kid's level, which I just think is awesome. It's I love you prayers. I'm sorry prayers. Thank you prayers. Please prayers. That's a great way. I mean, I, maybe not even on a kid level. This is great for adults as well. Considering different models of prayer, praying scripture. That's a model of prayer. The Psalms can be particularly helpful in that regard. They can be very leading in directive of what it is we can pray about. And as we break down the Lord's Prayer as a model, you're going to see a psalm in parenthesis, next to each point of the Lord's Prayer. That's a psalm that will direct you to pray through that big idea that we'll look at. That's a model of prayer as well. Let me give you a couple resources to just think about here. Principles and practices of prayer. You can come take a picture of these later and just go to Amazon if you want. By Ivan French, this little book is probably very academic. 
So if you consider yourself to be a thinker on that level and want to approach prayer on that level, this is probably going to be the book you want to be looking at and thinking about. This man, Ivan French, was the one who wrote the syllabus that was for the prayer class that I took at Grace College. That syllabus had been modified by Roger Pugh, who's also written a couple books and taught at Grace for several years. Uh, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by Jim Cimbala, pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. Sometime I will have to tell you the story about how I just happened to wander into a Brooklyn Tabernacle service. It was amazing. It was not planned. It was quite unexpected. But this book, if you're looking for stories about prayer... If you're more geared around what have other people done and what's the stories of what has happened there and how has God moved, this would be a tremendous, tremendous book for you as well. And then this one I I found to be personally just fantastic, Transforming Prayer by Daniel Henderson. And if you're musical at all, this one might connect with you. He just has a model of prayer based on a 4-4 time music signature that I just found myself resonating with because I'm geared in that way. So if you're not musical, that one probably doesn't connect. But if you are, it might. And uh, he does a lot here with praying through scripture. But we're talking about a model of Prayer And the Lord's Prayer is a model. It guides and directs us. It's not wrong to be said altogether, but it's not a magic formula that somehow creates and obligates God to do something for us. And so here's going to be the aspects of this model that we will look at. There, I went one past it. Don't worry if you don't get it all written down. We're going to show each of these individually. But prayer expresses worship. Prayer expresses submission. Prayer expresses dependence. Prayer expresses repentance. Prayer expresses the need for strength to forgive those who have wronged us. And prayer expresses the need for strength to fight for holiness. That's what I would believe would be the model here in part because there are verbs all throughout the quote, Lord's Prayer that we see. There are seven verbs. Now, I only have six aspects there. That's because I take thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and just compress that into point number two there. But we're going to look at those verbs because essentially there's six different requests that are made throughout this prayer that are summed up in that way. So let's go to verse 9 then at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer and consider then the first part of prayer expressing worship for who God is. Jesus says at the beginning of verse 9, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the Father who will be glorified as we are salty, And shining as lights. This is the Father who will reward us in secret as we give and pray and fast. Not for the praise of others but for the reward of 
the Father. This is the Father who, verse 8, we just thought about, already knows what we need before we ask Him. And His dwelling place is heaven. And so there you have expressed two parts to this Father, this Creator God that we worship. And that He is a Father. There's a relationship there. We can approach Him as His sons and daughters. Those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Scriptures tell us we've been adopted as His sons and daughters. He is our Heavenly Father. But His dwelling place is Heaven. It is not Earth. There is certainly a distinction between who He is and who we are. And the first aspect the first verb is that word hallowed if you underline in your bible i'd underline the verbs if i were you they guide and direct the six different requests that this prayer has in it the first one is hallowed now what's fascinating is that we often use the word hallowed as a word to describe things officially we'd call that an adjective it's a descriptive word we'd say that's hallowed ground when we're not inappropriate to do so we could go over to Gettysburg for example or down to Antietam and we'd say this is hallowed ground there was something that happened here that there needs to then be a a reverence brought about in our attitudes when about a week and a half ago I was at the flight 93 memorial with the youth group as part of camp I would say that's hallowed ground Something happened here that that creates a a reverence and a respect and an approach for us. And it's a way to describe those places. But that's not what Jesus says here. He says the word hallowed and he says it as a verb. The idea is, and some of your translations will say this, let your name be acknowledged as holy. The idea of hallowed and the definition there is The definition of holy, we might say glorious to that as well. And the idea behind hallowed be your name is a prayer that expresses worship for who God is, our Father in heaven, but also requests that we understand more and more and more of who He is. God, let me understand more of your glory. Let me acknowledge even more your holiness, your otherness. God, would you cause our church to even further acknowledge your glory and your holiness? This is one of the things the elders pray for when we get requests from people to anoint and pray for them. We've had two such requests in 2018 thus far. And there's three specific bullet points that we pray through each time. The first is, is that there and that individual, that their faith would be strengthened through the trial. In obedience to James chapter 1, where God gives us trials so that our faith would be strengthened. We don't have to like those trials. We certainly often don't enjoy those trials. But God's doing something because he wants us to be made more into the image of Jesus. And so we want to recognize that. And we want to just say, okay, we, we, we want this trial to cause greater perseverance and steadfastness. 
But then secondly, we boldly pray that the trial would end, whether it be a a health issue, whether it be a variety of different issues. We, We just pray right then and there that God would move and this would be done. But thirdly, we pray that God would reveal himself through this ordeal, whatever the ordeal is, whatever the trial is, in such a way that he would be seen as glorious. And that whether that individual might be healed through medicine, which God does, whether it's a, it's a miraculous healing, or whether it's just the grace needed to sustain someone during the midst of the trial, that God be seen as glorious because we want his name to be hallowed. Prayer first expresses worship for who God is. And this idea, this really be, it's the summary then of all of them. It's, it's the umbrella that every other one of these aspects in this prayer is going to roll up underneath. That in all things, God might be seen as holy and glorious. The second aspect when we get to then verse 10 is that prayer expresses submission before God. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Time will not permit us to unpack the idea of kingdom and what the Jews would have understood there in the first century and what we understand through other New Testament revelation that has been given to us. But the basic idea is that there's a kingdom here and now that we're a part of. We're under the rule and reign of King Jesus. But one day, there's going to be a kingdom that's very different than the one now. It'll begin with Jesus ruling and reigning for a thousand years on earth and then that's going to roll up. It's going to to culminate in a battle and then it's going to just continue on forever. Not the battle, but the ruling and reigning. It's going to continue on for all eternity and there'll be the new heavens and the new earth and a holy city and the new Jerusalem that Revelation 21 and 22 unpacks. With this idea of your kingdom come, your will be done, the words come and done are both the verbs there. I, as I said before, compress them together and summarize them in just one idea, that being of submission. But it would be let your kingdom come, let your will be done, or may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to spend just a few minutes here trying to unpack this because I think there's been a lot of unfortunate teaching about this particular point of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I do not believe this aspect of the Lord's prayer, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is that we're praying for the exact same things to happen here as in heaven. I don't believe that's what Jesus had in mind. There are things that will happen in heaven that will not happen on earth. At some point, creation will stop groaning under the weight and under the fall. At some point, sin, sickness, and death will no longer be a thing as on earth as it is in heaven. At some point, thorns and thistles will not infest the ground on earth as it is in heaven. But that point's not here and now. That's points when Jesus returns fully and finally. 
And I think there's been some unfortunate teaching here that has, and we'll go back to the example of, of healing and praying for that, that has said, well, there's no sin or sickness in heaven, and so we just need to pray that there should be no sin or sickness here with you right now. And it's on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're just going to have faith that that will be true. But I, I've got books that teach that, and I've, I've, I've tried to sit down with friends who believe that. But what becomes part and parcel to their approach is that we have to find the right words to say and say them in the right way and at the right time. And then God will move. And I just find myself going back to verses 6 and 7 where Jesus says, don't heap up a bunch of empty phrases. Don't approach prayer like that. That's not how we do it. These aren't magic phrases that we're uttering. These aren't incantations that we're trying to dance around the golden cauldron to, or the black cauldron to try to create something. Now our Father in Heaven knows what we need before we even ask Him. I, I, I think then the idea of your kingdom come on earth as it is in Heaven is one of submission. That God may my life be so fully submitted to you that it's exactly what you experience in heaven. Pastor and scholar J.I. Packard said this about this phrase, Here more clearly than anywhere the purpose of prayer becomes plain. Not to make God do my will, which is practicing magic, but to bring my will into line with His. God, I want my desires to reflect your desires. I want my choices to reflect your choices. I want to submit my plans and dreams and, and all of those things to you. So you let your kingdom come. You let your will be done. And I'll lay me down. I'm not my own. I belong to you alone. Thirdly, prayer expresses a dependence on God. And we see that then in verse 11. The, the verb there is the word give. Give us this day our daily bread. So Jesus is acknowledging and I think giving us full permission that there is a place for our expressing of needs to him. There's a place for the list. But that list is given in such a way that it expresses dependence. We're coming to him as the good father that he is. As the one who is in heaven. And we're acknowledging we have needs and we're asking him to provide for them because we are wholly dependent on him. One author said, The disciple prays for the immediate day-to-day -day necessities rather than the long-term luxuries. And there's a huge distinction between 2018 and first century when you think about just daily bread. This past week I moved a half a cow into about three different freezers so that I could then move a freezer and then I had to move a half a cow back. Quite frankly, folks, there's not really a question about what we're going to eat tonight. 
Maybe the question is what we're going to eat tonight. The question is not where are we going to get the food. We got plenty. Somebody in the first century would have a different set of questions there. Where's the fish going to get caught? Did we catch fish? Where's the grain going to come from? Did we have enough money to buy the grain? Did, we, did our jar run out? And so the, the idea of daily bread, I, I think, is Jesus telling us that even in the most simplest functions, simplistic functions of the day, that we're to be living in dependence on God. The argument there that's given is then a lesser to greater argument where if you're to express dependence on God for your bowl of cereal in the morning, why wouldn't you be expressing dependence on God about stuff that might matter a little bit more? It's a similar argument that the Apostle Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink in all that you do, do all to the glory of God. So if you're going to eat and drink for God's glory, then certainly you need to be thinking about the other things in your life to be for God's glory. It's the same basic idea, but Jesus is telling us that prayer expresses dependence on God. We're not coming to him with our list as if he's a genie. We're coming to him expressing dependence upon him. Certainly, there's an appropriateness to acknowledging the needs that we believe we have. But it's done so, and it's done after we've submitted and acknowledged that it's, it's his will, not our will, that we ultimately want. Next, in verse 12, we see that prayer expresses repentance for sins against God. The verb there is the word forgive. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The word debts there is the idea of, and it's the word that expresses a a moral debt. Something that's incurred. A debt morally that has been incurred because of sin. This is a prayer and prayer does also express repentance for sins against God. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba and his murdering of her husband. Prayer does this. It comes and expresses before God, I have sinned. The second part of verse 12 also tells us then that it expresses strength and the need for strength from God to forgive those who have wronged us. And we'll unpack this a little further next week. We're not going to get through verses 14 and 15 this morning. But what we'll do next week is we're going to come back to this idea of forgiveness. Because if you read ahead to verses 14 and 15, Jesus has a, a pretty... Pretty astounding statement that he's going to make come verse 14. And we're going to unpack that and aim to make sense of that before we step in to fasting and wrap up this idea of spiritual disciplines being done for the rewards of God, not for the praise of men. But here we see that we're asking for our debts to be forgiven as we forgive those who have become our debtors. 
those who have incurred a moral debt against us. And I think there's a very real sense here that prayer expresses the need for strength from God to forgive those who have wronged us. And we've been wronged before, and we know how difficult it is. We know how challenging it can be to forgive that wrong. Matthew 18, Jesus shares a parable of an unforgiving servant. He does so after first teaching on church discipline and the restorative point of when somebody has, when your brother has sinned against you, when your brother has wronged you, when your brother has incurred a moral debt against you, go to him, go to her, let them know, pursue reconciliation and forgiveness. And then there's some steps he gives if that doesn't take place. But then Peter hops on the scene and says, Lord, how, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Is it seven times? And I've joked before that perhaps Peter had been just wronged the eighth time. And he was wanting divine permission from the Son of God to somehow come and act with vengeance. And Jesus says, no, it's actually 70 times seven And the point there is not for Peter to count to 490, it's for Peter to lose count. For Peter to not worry about where the count is. And then Jesus gives the parable of the unforgiving servant. It would be a fascinating chapter to check out in anticipation of next Sunday. As we think about and wrestle and grapple with the idea that prayer expresses the need for strength. To forgive those who have wronged us. Lastly, prayer expresses the need for strength from God to fight for holiness. In verse 13, your verbs there, and again, I'm going to take two of them and compress them into one. And lead, lead would be one of them and deliver would be the other. Prayer expresses the need for strength from God to fight for Holiness and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. It could even be translated. We've thought about this over the last several weeks as we were looking at chapter 5. And when Jesus says, you know what, you thought about anger and murder in this way, but here I have a different way for you to think about it. Prayer expresses the need for strength to fight for holiness. We talked a lot throughout Matthew chapter 5 about how what Jesus targets is not just the actions the hands commit, but the desires the heart wants. And so your hands may never have taken somebody's life, but if your heart is angry towards somebody, it's as if your hands have committed the act. Your hands may not have ever committed adultery, but if your heart is lustful towards someone else, it's as if your hands have committed the act. He moves us past and moves these disciples past just asking the question, what have my hands done? And moves us to the question of what does my heart want? Prayer expresses the need for strength to fight for holiness. Not just so that our hands do the right thing, but that our hearts want the right things. That our hearts desire 
the right things. I don't know about you, but I find myself praying at the desire level often because I want my desires to change. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I want my desires to be in line with his desires. I want to want what he wants. I want to feel a freedom to go and pursue certain things because I've delighted myself in him and I've submitted myself to him and I acknowledge that he is completely other than me and there's a worship there and so that as I, as I move and as I act and as I, as I live that, that there, there can be a freedom that I have because I've, I've spent this time with God And I've pled with him that my desires would be different. That what I would desire would be holy and would be honoring to him. And would be for his glory and would be be in submission to him. I think that's this big idea here. of Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That prayer expresses the need for strength to fight for holiness. Hebrews 4.16 tells us to boldly approach the throne of God in our time of need because we have a high priest who's Jesus who has been tempted in every way that we were and yet was without sin. And because of the temptation that he experienced, he's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And as we approach the throne, we find the grace and mercy we need for the strength to fight. Prayer expresses worship for who God is. It expresses submission before God. It expresses dependence on God. It expresses repentance for sins against God. It expresses the need for strength from God to forgive those who have wronged us and the need for strength to fight for holiness. Prayer is not just a magic set of words that we say to somehow obligate God to do what it is that we want. It's the cultivating, it's the developing, it's the pursuing of a relationship with our Father in heaven. The band's going to come up and they're going to sing a song written in the 90s that I especially asked them to sing. I kind of cut my teeth as a kid musically on Michael W. Smith and Stephen Curtis Chapman. And so he wrote a song as it is in heaven, and it's the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to have the words on the screen, and the tune may be unfamiliar, but the words are going to be very familiar. And so as you're comfortable, I'd encourage you to just sing. But this is what we're singing, and this is what the Lord's Prayer is wanting us to do and to pursue. Let's pray now as they come forward. God, may these things be true of us, increasingly true of us. God, would would you give us the grace of conviction? Would Would you just reveal where in our lives we have an approach to prayer this way? God, would you convict us of that? And as we pursue you, as 
as we draw near, as we boldly approach. We pray that you would help us to grow in this area. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.